This morning we are uh, going to be in the book of Jeremiah, so you can turn over to the book of Jeremiah if you like, Jeremiah chapter 29. Just taking a little little break from uh, Matthew just for a week. I figured uh, today would be a good day to kind of set some direction for the new year, for our spiritual lives, for our church. Uh, most of you received these little cards as you came in with an envelope. These are to record on the card, maybe two or three things that you want to accomplish, you want the Lord to accomplish in your life in 2011. And so you can write those down there and put them in the envelope and address the envelope to yourself and then put them in the jar in the back. There's one called uh, Spiritual Goals for 2011. There's also going to be one over in the Fellowship Hall as well. And, uh, and then at the end of the year, I'll mail these back to you. I'm not going to read them, so that's why you put them in an envelope and seal them up. But uh, I'm not interested in... And uh, that, but you can uh, make your uh, goals for the year and just be praying about that. Some of you asked me, when are you going to do it? Because I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, well, I'll do it the week we have the business meeting and a uh, good way to start off the year. But this morning, I want us to turn our hearts to God's Word and uh, turn over in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning, and this is a very well-known passage. Ken read it for our scripture reading, and we all probably know the verse and have it memorized, 29-11. We've used it in our life in times of discouragement. For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you hope and a future. We love to quote that verse, and uh, it's a popular verse. You see it on cards. You see it all over the place. Um, But as we begin this new year, um, I want you to know that a lot leads up to that book, that verse in the book of Jeremiah. He doesn't just throw that verse out there in the middle of nowhere. So we want to get a little bit of uh, background and a little bit of understanding of where Jeremiah was coming from. And we'll do that just really very briefly. But as we begin this new year, I know we're three quarters away through January, but as a church, it's just a way to kind of set a date. The year we've just come through has been tough for a lot of people. Uh, I think you would agree with that statement. Uh, It's been a tough year we've come through. It's been a tough economy. We've seen people lose jobs. We've seen people in financial crisis. We've seen people who, because of all that pressure, have issues in their marriage, in their family. People have health issues that they're dealing with. People have dealt with spiritual battles. In 2010, and even as a church, we've dealt with some battles here and there. Um, See, we run up against things like that, and when we do, it's easy to become discouraged, isn't it? It's easy to get your eye off the goal. It's easy to lose track, to feel defeated, Um, We may look at our situation and sometimes we feel hopeless. We feel like, what's the use? I've been praying for this situation for years and it doesn't seem like, it seems like it's getting worse. It doesn't seem like God's doing anything. But see, when it gets us to the point of being discouraged or depressed or even disillusioned, we we have to stop and we have to say, wait a minute, what's, what's really going on here? So as we, we begin this new year, I want to share with you some insights from the book of Jeremiah, God's prophet, from his word through his prophet Jeremiah. And I hope that they'll encourage your heart like they encouraged mine as I was kind of studying for this. 
you know, I was, I was going to stay in Matthew. And the next message in Matthew is titled, A Taxing Question. Okay. And I uh, started looking at it, and it's interesting, and, <clears throat> and it would be a fun study to go through because Jesus is, you know, he gets the fish and the, the coin out of the fish to pay his tax or whatever. And I thought, you know, it's just not a very um, encouraging kind of a thing to think about taxes <laughs> so early, not yet. So we'll do that next week. So I put that off for a week just to kind of give us a little bit of encouragement for uh, the new year. You know, and maybe you're sitting here this morning and you had a great 2010. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged. Man, God bless my socks off. That's great. You know, praise God for that. But this morning, I know that this passage will speak to our hearts and encourage you in your Christian walk, no matter where you're at, whether you had a tough year, whether um, you didn't. If you had a tough year, you're in um, good company. Because as we look at this book of Jeremiah, I believe that's how Israel felt when Jeremiah began to give them some messages from God. Stop and think of their situation just quickly, if you know anything about the book of Jeremiah, and at this juncture in the book of Jeremiah, you have to understand that Israel is being held captive. They've been taken out of everything that's familiar to them. Can you imagine that? Someone coming into your home and arresting you and taking you to a foreign place and locking you up and making you their slave. You don't have your nice Lazy boy anymore to sit and watch your favorite show. You don't have your wife to bring your, your snack. You don't have any of that. You're in a total discomfort zone. That's what happened to Israel. They were taken out of their homeland, and they were living in a land where they were ruled over by their enemies. They were made slaves. And they felt defeated. With good reason, they were. Babylon conquered them. They were defeated. They were being ruled over by their enemies. Nebuchadnezzar had come and plundered Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah, in his letter to these exiles, these people of God who were living in exile, away from their own homeland, captives by their enemy, he wanted to communicate to them some truths that he wanted them to understand and then live their lives accordingly. But see, just like it hit a nerve with them when Jeremiah told them these things. Those truths are applicable to us today as well in our situations, no matter what we're going through. We, know, we don't know what this new year may bring. But just as Israel, if you think of the <coughs> parallels here, just as Israel was aliens in a foreign land, what does the Bible call us? Pilgrims, sojourners, aliens, strangers in this world. As we follow Christ, we are aliens in the world around us. That's what Peter says in the New Testament. We're strangers, we're aliens in this world that is so dominated by sin and destruction. And we're in a foreign land just like Israel was. And just as Israel did... We have a God today who is above all of our circumstances. He's above all of our circumstances, no matter what the new year may bring. Well, turn over to Jeremiah 29. I just want to read our full text. Ken read part of it, but I just want to go ahead and read the the full text for us so we can get the context of what we'll be talking about. Beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the words 
of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to priests, to prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the, the hand of Elasa, the son of Shapha, Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon. That's why I didn't have you read the first couple of verses there, Ken. I had grace on you this morning. <laughs> to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And here's what the Lord said, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here are his instructions. Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, so that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you, In my name, I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, and to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and and, and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place which I caused you to be carried away captive. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to these truths that are before us. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts afresh through the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Four things this morning that I want you to understand about Jeremiah. The background is is that Israel's been held captive. They're in a foreign land. Four things. The first thing is found there in verses 1 through 4. We sang about it this morning. Simple fact that God is in control. Amen? God is in control. That's what it says. It says God is in control. This is not some weird accident that happened to Israel. This isn't some twist of fate. They're where they are because God put them there. Because God is in control. They are in his hands. Look at what he says in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. That, that little phrase, Lord of hosts, it's a covenant name for God. Lord of hosts, it speaks of God's almighty sovereign power. 
We don't serve a wimpy God, beloved. We serve an almighty, powerful God. All-powerful. Omnipotent in every way. What he's pointing out to them is that this God who's in control is all-powerful. See, their situation, even though it wasn't comfortable, even though they wouldn't have chosen it, this is all part of God's sovereign plan for their life. Part of God's sovereign plan and purpose for their life. It's not accidental. It's the will of God. See, Babylon is being used by God as his agent to fulfill his will in Israel. And his eternal purposes. That first name there, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, some translations have it, speaks of the power of God. See, we not only serve a powerful God, but look at what he says secondly there. He says, the God of Israel. See, our God is a powerful God, but our God is also a personal God. He wants us to know that he knows our name. He says, the God of my people. See, God has something to say to you this morning. You're not here by accident. You're here because God wanted you here. God desired that you be here. And then he says this in verse 4, to all who were carried away captive. And then he says, whom I have caused to be carried away. He caused this. He caused them to be taken out of their comfortable homes in Jerusalem and and to have that city plundered. And they were hauled off to Babylon in a foreign land. In this situation, it was because of Israel's unbelief and Israel's disobedience. It was an act of discipline on God's behalf. But, beloved, that's not always the case. God doesn't do things in our lives just because we're doing something wrong. Do you think that's the only time God's going to work in your life when you do something wrong? If that's your outlook on life, that's pretty sad. I want a God who's going to step into my life and do something when I'm doing everything right. And say, hey, you're doing a great job, but this isn't what I have. I have you over here now. I want you over here. I wanted you to do this. I want you to go down this path. Not that that path was wrong, but you know what? I, I have other plans. I have other purposes. I think in the Bible of individuals who weren't necessarily doing the wrong thing. And God stepped into their life in a big-time way. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, here he is, you know. He ends up just in dire straits with his brother. And in the end, he concludes, you know what? What, my, what, what they have meant to harm me, God has meant somehow to, to, to make this... Make my life better out of this. He's going to do something through this. He acknowledged the sovereignty of God. Or David. Some of his stuff he brought on himself. We know that. But even so. I mean, think about it. Here he is, supposed to be the king, and he's being chased around for years and years. By Saul. I mean, he got to stop and say, this isn't fair. Stop. No. Even Jeremiah, if you know anything about the Jer- prophet Jeremiah, I mean, he was always being beat up and stripped of his clothes. All sorts of things happened to this poor guy. Not because he was doing anything wrong, because he was doing everything right. 
So you have to stop and you have to acknowledge that God is in control of everything. If you can't come to that point of reference when you think of God, what kind of God are you serving? Why are you here? Why would you want a God who isn't in control of everything? Matthew 10.30 says that God is in control of everything. He even knows how many hairs are on your head. Matthew 6.34 says this, and this is why it says it, because God is in control of everything. It says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Tomorrow's got enough to worry about. You, you just you know, worry about its own things. You know, let that take care of itself. You, sufficient for the day, the scripture says, is its own trouble. Don't be worrying about tomorrow. Don't be worrying about, well, what am I going to do at the end of the month? Or, oh, how am I going to do this? Now, I'm not saying you don't plan and you don't have a, a purpose and things like that. And you, you, you sketch things out. But you know what? That all has to be under the sovereign hand of God. It's not easy, is it, to live that way? It's not easy acknowledging God in control of everything. And the reason it's not is because life doesn't stop. Life never stops. It keeps coming at us. Every day we're bombarded with things constantly, faced with decisions over and over and over again. And God is constantly allowing these things into our lives so that we can become more and more dependent on him, acknowledging that he is in control and we are not. How do you see your life? How do you see your situation? Do you acknowledge and see that God is in control over everything? Are you off in the corner fretting, wringing your hands? Do you acknowledge God's sovereign plan in your life? Or do you shake your fist at God? Blame him for your situation. Or do you shake your fist at others and blame them for, their, for your situation? You know, if you're, if you're blaming others for your situation, you're really blaming God. <laughs> in the end, it all comes back to God. When you look throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, God's people were always harassed. They were always, when they stood up and they did the right thing, they were always harassed, whether it was in the Old Testament, whether it was in the New Testament, the church, and even today. I got a book the other day in the mail by, um, entitled Tortured for Christ, talking about an individual who, who literally is tortured for his faith. And we, we look back and we, and we think, well, gee, that's... You know, that seems kind of odd. Why do we think it's odd when Jesus said in John 16, he said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? What's he say? Tribulation. You will have tribulation. You'll have problems. You'll have issues. But he says, take heart. Why? Because he has overcome the world. See, we have a sovereign God. We have an all-powerful God. If anything, commit this year, 2011, to accept whatever comes at you from the hand of God and allow him to have his way in your life. If you can rest in that point, you're doing pretty well. Turn over to Psalm 137. Like I said, this is not an easy thing to do. I mean, we can acknowledge God is in control, But what happens when we're looking at the spreadsheet and the numbers don't add up? And we're going, oh, what are we going to do? Business could fail. I I have a, you know, my family, my employee, all this stuff is on on the brink. I mean, that's not an uncommon thing in today's economy. 
Are we going to worry? Are we going to fret? Are we going to continue to work hard and trust God for the outcome? Psalm 137. Look at verses 1 to 4. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. (laughs) Once again, Israel's captive in this foreign land. He says, yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. We thought back on how it was. And then he says in verse 2, we hung our harps upon the willows, trees, in the midst of it. So they're in this foreign land. They're being held captive. And it says eventually they got so discouraged. They got so disillusioned. They sat down and they, they hung up their harps on the trees. Verse 3. For there those who carried us away captive asked us for a song. And those who plundered us, we, we requested a mirth, a, a, saying, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Look at the answer, verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Do you hear the defeat? Do you hear the discouragement? Do you hear, hear the, the alienation that they feel in this foreign land? What they do? They quit, is what they did. They said, we're not going to sing anymore. We're hanging our harps on the tree, pal. And we're going to sit here and cry like a bunch of babies. Because we remember what it used to be like. They were discouraged. They were overwhelmed, to put it bluntly, with their circumstances. That's exactly where they were. And you know what? That's what Christians feel every day. Overwhelmed with their circumstances. And there's a lot of Christians who do just what these folks did. They hang their harp on the tree. What's the use? You've done it. I've done it. We've all gotten to that point at one point or another. We've done it in our own personal lives. We've done it collectively as a church. See, the world might look at these people and say, well, yeah, sure, they're discouraged. It's okay. It's okay. That's okay that they're, they're just ready to give up. They're, they're sitting there and they just remember the good old times and they don't want to sing a song. They're, they're depressed. Look at their situation. And the world looks at that and says, oh, that's okay to be that way. See, that's a response that the world looks as normal. Well, let me tell you something. God doesn't see it that way. Not at all. God does not see it that way. It does no good to give in and give up and and stop praising and serving God when things get difficult. What good is that? I'm not saying you walk around some pie in the sky pretending everything is different, lives in some little magical bubble in your mind, you know, professing blessing on everybody and confessing, you know, wealth and health and prosperity. I'm not talking about that. That's pie-in-the-sky garbage as far as I'm concerned. I'm talking about an attitude change that says, you know what? Yeah, my circumstances are tough, but you know what? God's in control. And he's an almighty, personal God. He's on my side. He's even caused this to happen in my life for whatever reason. I don't know. We should press on. 
to the future, toward God's divine purpose for us beyond the present circumstances. That's what we need to do when we're in that situation. You know what? God will still be God and he'll still be there when the situation has resolved itself. He's still going to be there. How do we do that? How do we press on? Well, we do that, first of all, by believing that God wants us to make a courageous decision of putting ourselves and our plans in his loving hands. That's the first thing. What are we talking about? We're talking about committing ourselves to him by faith. I mean, if you're waiting for a handwritten note under your pillow from God, it's not going to happen. All you have to do is step back and look at the, even the scientific evidence, creation. Look at your little baby and realize all the nerves and all the things that make the eyes work and how they hear. And it's amazing. Just the human body alone is a testimony of the power and creative work of God in your life. It didn't happen just by chance. Commit yourself to him by faith. That's the first step from turning to dis- from discouragement and disillusionment into triumph. Turn to the all-powerful, almighty God. I mean, if he's not the sovereign God over all things, then what's the use of doing everything? Let's just, you know, throw our Bibles away and go home and, and watch football. No use in being here. See, remember this new year that God is in control. He's in control in our own personal lives. He's in control in our church. He's in control in our situations, where our companies, whatever it might be, our families, our marriages, our kids. God is in control. God hasn't blinked. He hasn't turned his back. Yeah, maybe it's not playing out the way you want it to. Well, guess what? The last time I checked... God's God and you're not. So that's what we need to focus on. Focus on the fact that God is in control. Secondly, if God is in control and you believe that God is working, get involved in God's work. And this is what he tells him in verses 5 to 7. Look at what he says in the text. Look at these commands that he gives. Build houses. Dwell in them, he says. Plant gardens, eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and daughters and, your, and, to, and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And then he says, seek peace in the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. Don't cause problems there. Seek peace. And how do you do that? You, you pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. That kind of makes sense. Look at these commands that he gives us. Just quickly, we'll go through these. First of all, build. Build. What's it say when someone's ready to build? If you came up to me and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for a plot of land. I'm going to build a house here in Redwood City. What's that going to speak to me? That's going to say, you know what? You're planning on probably sticking around here. You're probably planning on hanging around here for a little while. I mean, there are people that build houses and sell them and move on, whatever. That's different. But if, the, if you're going to own that house and you're going to live in it, that, that tells me something. You're ready to settle down. You're ready to get involved. You're in it for the long haul. It's not a sprint, beloved. The Christian life is never a sprint. It's a marathon. 
And that's the same with ministry. Don't get discouraged and give up. Get involved. Stay involved. If you're not involved, get involved. You know, the one thing I like about our church, when you sit down and you look at the people, we're a small church. 40, 60 people. Small church. Talk to the average pastor. You talk about the average church. Basically, it breaks down this way. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's what happens. That's basically across the board. General statement. And I'm thankful that I'm in a church with people that understand that they need to get involved in God's work. We don't have too many people that just sit around and do absolutely nothing. For one, we can't afford it. It takes everything we can just to, you know, run a Sunday just go to nursery and do, provide some refreshments for you afterwards and provide some worship and teach. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of taxed as it is. But when I step back and I look at the congregation, most people are doing one or two things. Minimum. Sometimes you've got to step in and say, you know what, maybe the fourth or fifth thing, maybe, you just, you know, maybe somebody else will step up. And I love their heart because they look around and go, well, nobody's doing it. See, that, that's the kind of people that we need. We need the kind of people that are willing to look around and say, what needs to get done? And yeah, I'm busy, and i got things going on in my life, but what needs to get done? Let's do it together. Let's build together. I'm ready to settle down and make an impact here in Redwood City in this peninsula because the last time I checked, I mean, the last time I checked, beloved, Redwood City in this peninsula, at least from my perspective, it's filled with people who are lost. It's filled with people who are quickly on their way to hell in a Christless, godless eternity. We're not living in the Bible Belt. Hello? We're just not. I mean, you talk to other pastors, even my brother back east or whatever, you know, and, you know, it's just Sunday people go to church in certain places. Down south where Christopher lives, Sunday, I mean, they close stores on Sunday so that people go to church. We live in an area on the peninsula here where less than 4%, I saw one statistic that said less than 4% of the population on the peninsula, this peninsula from, from basically um, southern Palo Alto right up through San Francisco there, less than 4% of the people go to any church. That includes the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and all the cults. 4%. If you don't believe me, just walk around the neighborhood here. And start asking people where they go to church. Well, the answer is, well, I used to go. Well, I, you know, I was Catholic. I or, you know, they give you all these answers. I have friends at the coffee shop that used to go to church. They don't go to church anymore. We don't live in a place where people go to church. So there's a need. There's a need for people who know Christ... And understand that they still live in a lost and dying world. And view those people on the quick track to hell. And say, you know, you know what? God has placed me here. Maybe you don't know for how long. Maybe you don't know what his ultimate plan is. It's irrelevant. If you know he's placed you here now, they weren't going to be here forever. 
I think they maybe started to believe that. That's why they sat down to the stream and just hung their harps up in the tree. Said, oh, what's the use? Last time I checked, our job is not done. I know for a fact that God is not done working because he says in his word that he's not willing that what? Any should what? Perish, it says. So as long as we have breath in our our lungs, we need to be out there telling people about the good news of the gospel. We need to be testifying of how God has worked in our lives. You need to be willing to build, invest. Second thing there is plant. Look at what he says. He said, build houses and dwell in them, and then plant gardens and eat their fruit. Now we're really talking about settling down. More so than may you, you, you may understand. See that, that word planting there? Plant. It really has the idea of not just planting a little vegetable garden. You know, he's not talking about out there and tilling your zucchini and then you pick your zucchini and the thing dies. He's not talking about that. This word is used when it's talking about planting orchards. Do you understand the difference between a vegetable garden and an orchard? You go out and you plant a vegetable garden, basically what are you going to get? You're going to get some tomatoes, you're going to get some stuff, and then basically most of those plants next year, they don't just start growing back and yielding fruit. But when you go to somebody who has an orchard, what happens? I mean, it takes a a lot longer to get there, first of all, to actually be able to pick the, the fruit off the tree. But the next year, what happens? You come back, and you still got fruit has a lasting impact. He's saying plant orchards that will yield crops for years to come. We need to get out of the mindset, us for no more. We look to the future year after year and say, what am I going to invest in the future? Of me personally as a Christian? Of my family? Of my church? How am I looking down the road for this? What's this place going to be like in 10 years? What's this place going to be like in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? See, God is saying, don't give in and don't give up. Build something. Put some roots down. Plant. Be committed. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And here's what he appointed us to do. That you should go and what? What's it say? Bear fruit. Very clear. And that your fruit should remain. We're not talking about some smelly piece of fruit that gets thrown in the trash. He wants a fruit that's beneficial to everybody around it. See, some Christians get all spiritual and, you know, well, God is, you know, he's doing fruit in my own life, personally. And they're not involved in squat. He's talking about bearing fruit that benefits not just yourself, but everybody else. Fruit, reproducing fruit. It's unfortunate. This is a general statement, but you know what? I talked to a lot of Christians who never reproduced anything. Nothing. If they come to church and they study their Bible and they pray and they do nothing. Nothing to show for it. Maybe some head knowledge. That's not what he's talking about here. 
talking about building. He's talking about planning. And then he talks about investing. Look at verse 6. He says, take wives and beget sons and daughters. And he says, take wives for your sons and daughters. And give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters. That you may what? Increase there and not diminish. What's he talking about? He's talking about making an investment. Being willing to to, to really build and really plan and say, you know what? I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in it for generations. I'm interested because, you know, and, and I thank God that a lot of you have this kind of mindset. You really do. I mean, stop and think about it. Probably four years ago, I mean, we had a nursery. It was not like the nursery we have today. Why? Because some folks got motivated. Why? Because it was in their interest to get motivated. Hey, kids coming. Hey, what are we going to do about nursery? Well, let's fix it up. Okay. See, they made an investment. See, and that's what we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, what is God calling me to make an investment? What area? Maybe it's not the nursery. Maybe it's children's ministry. Maybe it's not children's ministry. Maybe it's the worship team. You know, I mean, you know, we're, we're not about, if, if you know anything about us as a church, we're not about performance here. We're not about, you know, having the best, you know, not that we don't want to do the best. We want to do everything with excellence and quality, okay? But I mean, I mean, just for example, I went to a church yesterday for a conference I was blown away by the worship. I mean, these guys could play backwards. I mean, it was just amazing. Blindfolded. You know, I mean, I mean, they're like professional musicians. And the singers were just pitch perfect, beautiful harmonies. And I'm just sitting there going, wow. What do I got to do tomorrow, God? In my little church? It ain't going to sound like that. You know what? God doesn't care about that. I mean, I'm thankful that we have people like that that are gifted, Shelly and Bob and Ken and others that are willing to participate in the sound and help out. I mean, we need all that. But don't be timid about it. Be willing to invest yourself. Maybe you can't sing spot-on notes. You know what? If you can't sing, if you're that bad of a singer and you come to me and say, you know, I'd really like to be on the worship team. Trust me, I'll tell you, it ain't going to happen. Is that fair? That's fair, right? I'm not going to give you some, you know, you see this American Idol thing. Sometimes if you ever watch that, these people come up there and they audition, and they have, they're horrible. They have horrible voices. And I'm thinking, is this a joke? Do they really believe they can sing? You know, it wouldn't be helping them to put them, go to Hollywood or whatever the next stage is. That, that wouldn't be helping them. They need a reality check. Maybe it's an instrument you play. Maybe it's helping out in the fellowship. Maybe it's lending a hand to, Give folks rights, whatever it might be. Be willing to invest yourself. First Corinthians ten eleven it says, Now all these things have happened. It talks about all the Old Testament folks, and it says that they happened as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. See, all the Old Testament examples of faith and character, all these things are examples for us today. And what we want to do today is we want to live productive lives so that we can be examples for the next generation. What do you do when you plant something? 
When you plant something out in your garden, if it's a vegetable garden, you go out there and you plant a tomato plant, you go out there and you may water that plant, you may feed that plant, you may make sure the bugs are staying off the plant, whatever. Why? Why would you do that? So you can pick tomatoes someday, right? You're looking forward because you're making an investment and you want to see some fruit. You're anticipating something. Even when we marry someone, we anticipate investing ourselves with another person in life. Maybe having kids, leaving a legacy behind. He also says there that we are to seek peace for the city. It says, so the city, if the city prospers, we're going to prosper. See, when we... If you build and you invest and you plant, what, that kind of it builds some anticipation, doesn't it? I mean, if you were an entrepreneur and you went out and you started a new company, and you were looking for investors, and they said, "Well, you know, what do you what do you expect?" and you said, "Well, nothing. I just want your money." You know, they're not going to give you the money. All right. And, and the cool thing about God is that He shows us what He wants us to reap. He wants us to reap. Fruit, but we have to plant, build, invest. We have to seek the peace of the city. How do we do that? See, we, we have to establish ourselves as a, a beacon of light here in this community. How does that happen? Because we stop and we see how God affects change in the lives of people. Some of you, God has changed your lives in the past couple of years. The only reason I know that is because I see it, first of all. Secondly, it's because you told me. Maybe you've come forward and you were baptized and you gave a testimony of how God has changed you, transformed you, saved you. See, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be salt and light to a lost and dying world for His glory. We need to proclaim the good news of the gospel in the darkness. I mean, that's why the light comes, to dispel darkness. That's why salt is used to preserve whatever it's used on. And God did that even with Israel in Babylon. They had a presence in that pagan, totally pagan nation. That you know what? There was a true God. And that God is faithful. We need to stop putting our harps in the trees, beloved. Don't give up. God's not done working yet. As far as seeking peace, come to the understanding that unbelievers are not our enemies. They're victims of the enemy. We need to reach out in faith, trusting God for the results. You know, when you go to work, be praying, who do you want me to reach out to today? Which one do you want me to... Give the gospel to today. Which one do you want me to maybe share a testimony with today? Maybe reach out and help a struggling family. Whatever it might be. We need to reach out in faith. Trusting God for the results. The Bible says that we need to love our enemies. Because Christ died for us. And we were enemies of God when he did that. It says Christ died for us, yet we were yet sinners. He died for us. And then the last thing there he speaks of is prayer. Are you praying for our city? Are you praying for our church? Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for your lost loved ones? 
Well, I thought that's, you know, that's what the elders are for. That's what the pastor's for. Take a little peek at verse 4, Jeremiah 29. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to, what's the next word? All who were carried away captive. All. You see, it's everyone's involvement. That's what it takes to affect change in this lost and dying world because we're, we're, in, we're in it over our head. Like I said, we don't live in the South. So we've got to fight harder. We've got to be willing to, to be uh, just more involved on this peninsula if we're going to have a change for the good. And it's not just the priests, the prophets, and the princes, but it says everybody. And that, like I said before, I want to commend you as a church. Our involvement level is very high in our church. And I praise God for that. But I know that some of you are not as involved as you could be. I know that. God has gifted you in ways that, man, I just frothing at the bit. Thinking, man, you just let God use you. Step out in faith. I know your schedule swamped. I know you're juggling the kids and the wife and the job, and you, know, you don't know which ends up. See, that's where a step of faith comes involved. That's where you've got to say, you know what, I've got to... Step away from some of this stuff and just trust God. In the new year, I'm going to serve him just this much more in an area that maybe I'm gifted in. We must be willing to make a choice. Are we serving others? Are we building a solid presence in the lives of others so that you might plant and build and see increase in their lives? It's never too late. And by the way, you're never too old. See, I don't buy into this whole retirement garbage, to be honest. I think that's the worst thing that ever happened to our society. Because it carries over to everything else. You know, some of you folks have been retired for years. That's great. That should give you more time to serve the Lord, as far as I'm concerned. Not hold up in your homestead. I mean, we need to address these kind of things. It's never too late to be more involved. It's never too late to come along a young person and have an impact on them. You know, Israel was 70 years in captivity before it ended. And you know what? They could have just sat back and said, well, what's the use? I mean, we're held here in captivity. That's basically what they did. They hung their harp in the tree. See, that's not the attitude that God wants us to have, no matter what our situation, no matter what our age. Some of you find yourselves in flux. Your situation's changing. You don't know which, you know, what's going to happen. Don't limit your involvement because of that situation. Roll up your sleeves and get involved. I remember when Will and Crystal after they got married and they were in the Navy. And I remember in Washington when they lived up there, kept on, they were going to church, but they weren't really involved. They were about a year and a half into their three-year, they move every three years. And she said, well, you know, if I get involved now, I mean, we're going to be leaving another year. So why even do it? And I thought, you know what? This is going to be very dangerous for them as a family. Because they're going to continue to move for the next 
you know, 20 years, basically, until he's out of the Navy. So therefore, they'll never be involved in any church. And I thank God that God spoke to her heart and spoke to Will's heart and said, you know what? We don't care if we're there for six months or we're there for six weeks or six years. We're going to get involved in a church. So how does that play out? They're in Florida now. They're moving to D.C. Hopefully in April. They were supposed to move in January. See, they're in flux. They don't know which end's going on. So January runs around. Crystal said, well, you know, I want to join this Bible study, but we may leave in the middle of it. Uh, you know what she's doing? She joined the Bible study. She's plugged in. She doesn't know if she's going to be there in April or not. They're already looking for a church in D.C. You know, everything's up in the air. But that's not limiting their involvement. So you have to understand something. For whatever reason, God has you right where you're at right now. And he wants to use you. He wants to use your gifts. He wants to use your abilities to bless the people around you where you're at right now. Don't wait till, you know, you get settled and everything. That's not how God works. Because just about the time you feel you're settled, what's going to happen? God's going to come along and say, hey, you know what? Game plan change here. We're going to mix things up a little bit. I mean, that's the exciting part, at least it is for me, of, of living the Christian life. And I don't like change. But he wants you plugged in and he wants you involved in his work. And you know what? We're always going to come up with good excuses. I didn't say bad excuses. I said good excuses. You know, I'm elderly. I'm too old. I can't do certain things. I know you can pray. I spoke with a gentleman earlier this week. And we were talking about involvement. And he was saying, I, wish, I just wish I could do more. And I was like, man, you know, for your age, you do a lot already. What do you mean more? I said, you, know, you, you need to relax and just pray. If you pray, God will use those prayers. And he'll work. But that's the kind of attitude that we need to have. We want God to use us here in this place. Because that's where we're at right now. Some people, you know, been there, done that. I've already done my duty. No, you haven't. Sorry doesn't work that way. Some people come up and, well, you know, I'd love to teach, but I just don't know enough. You probably know more than the kids that are down there about something. <laughs> or maybe, you know, when my kids are older, then, you know, that seems like a pretty, you know, family man kind of a excuse. Because that's what it is. And you can go on and on and on. See, that's what he's saying, don't do. Don't hang your harp in the tree. Wow, wow, wow. Well, I would, but just get involved. Roll your sleeves up. Trust God, because he's in control anyway, right? Trust God. Build, plant, invest. Seek the peace of the city. Pray, because it's going to take all of this, beloved. Remember an illustration of a man who was retired and he was going back to get his degree. Never got his degree. And he went, he's going back and he was telling his friends at the coffee shop, you know, hey, I'm going to be going back and getting my degree to college. He's retired and older. 
One of his friends said, really? He goes, you know, do you know by the time you get your degree, you're going to be 70 years of age? And kind of stopped and said, well, I never thought about that. But you know what? I'm going to be 70 anyway. (laughs) See, age doesn't stop. But what are you going to be doing when you reach that age? Don't waste our time. God says, don't be thinking about the what ifs. He wants us to trust him. Is he in control or not? If he is in control, then we can trust him. We can trust him to help us get back into his business, to get back to doing what he wants us to do. And then when that happens, things start to happen. Remember this year to be involved in God's work more than you were last year. The only thing that's going to last here on this earth, beloved, it's not your 401k. You already know that. It's not your car. It's not your house. The only two things that are eternal are God's word and the souls of those around you. Those are the two things that we can invest in. Thirdly, quickly, discern God's truth. Discern God's truth. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, notice he uses the same terminology, Almighty, Powerful One, and the personal God of Israel. He says, Do not let your prophets and diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. What's going on here? The sovereign covenant God here is speaking, all-powerful God. And what he's saying is you need to have a discerning ear of truth. You need to understand who you're listening to and who not to listen to. See, we're always looking for the path of least resistance, aren't we? We're always looking for the easy way out. And Jeremiah told him, there is no easy way out. You're going to be here for a while, but you know what? You need to make the best of it. And they started listening to some of the false prophets around them and said, don't listen to Jeremiah. You know, you're not going to be here long. Don't, don't build. Don't plant. Don't invest. Don't seek peace. Don't bother praying. You're going to move on. You're God, God of Isaac, Jake. He's going to come back and he's going to get you out of this mess. Boy, their ears pick, pick, pick you know. They, they, they wanted to hear that. <laughs> what I was going to say, <laughs> Perked up, yes, yeah, the word I was looking for. Their ears perked up. Funny thing is, every, 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 every time now I make a blunder, a goofy statement or something, in my mind, in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, edit that out of the tape. <laughs> it's horrible. But anyway, their ears perked up when they heard that because they thought, hey, we don't have to do this stuff that Jeremiah's telling us. We're just going to kick back here and, and, and wait till God comes and saves us. They're looking for a shortcut. Today we have, unfortunately, people even in the ministry that are always looking for the shortcut. It was funny, I was telling Doug, I was online looking for some way to continue my education, looking to work on my master's degree and things. And I mean, there's all sorts of stuff online, you know. And you got seminaries on there that, you know, you send them 
One, one seminary, no lie, it was two for one. 2500 bucks, you get your master's and your doctor in divinity, you know, I'm thinking. And I thought, who are these people, you know? They don't have a building, they don't, you know, it's just a, a diploma mill. And part of the reason I'm telling you that is because I'm seriously thinking about furthering my education, and now you can hold me accountable that I don't go to one of those places because, you know what, it's kind of tempting. It's like, wow, I can just cram this. Who cares? You know, you, oh, you got a master's degree. That's nice. Where's this from? Well, it's from Edinburgh Theological Seminary. Oh, really? Okay. It's a game. I mean, education's a game, too. You've got to understand that. But there's a, there's a wise way to go about education and an unwise way. But see, we're always looking for the shortcut. And today in ministry, a lot of churches are looking for shortcuts. They're looking, you know, to fill the pews. They're looking to, you know, hey, what, what works? What, what do people want to hear? What's going to tickle their ears? What kind of entertainment do they want? And I committed when I came to this church 13 years ago that I, I'm not going to be about that. First of all, because it's not my personality. I mean, yesterday when I was watching this worship leader, he didn't play any instruments. He just sang with this incredible voice leading the band. And the, you know, and he was up there and just incredible personality. And I'm sitting there going, why can't I be like that? You know, I can't even look at my people when I'm playing, you know, I'm too shy, you know. And I thought, well, you know what? There's no, there's no shortcut. God, God's not concerned about that. I mean, God blesses certain individuals in certain ways. But I'll tell you one thing. I, I, I praise God that I'm not here just telling you what you want to hear. I'm not taking surveys every week wondering what's going to be the next series of sermons because I want, I want you to like me. I'm not about just giving you what you want. I want I want to give you what God says you need and I need. There was a demon one time telling Satan he found a guy that discovered a half truth. And he said, you know, we gotta go get that half truth out of his hands because, you know, and Satan said, I'm not worried about that. Let him go. He's just gonna take that half truth and he's gonna make a religion out of it, and that'll deceive more people. See, we have to understand that we come back and we base our beliefs on the word of God. And in this case, if Israel would have done that, they would have, they would have not been in the situation they were at. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 20 to 25, you can read it on your own. God told them, you know what, if you disobey me, you're going to end up in a foreign land. And that's exactly what happened to them. Because they did not discern correctly the word of God. They weren't willing to commit to it. They weren't willing to be discriminating about what they were hearing. And we always need to come back and we need to compare what we hear taught with the word of God. Over the years in ministry, some people have ventured to come up to me and you know, they use these words. You know, brother, God told me to tell you. And then they go on and they're critical about something. Just the way it is. I heard about one pastor. <laughs> Turn right back to the person. And he said, you know what? I think if God could tell you, he could tell me. See? Not that we're not open to counsel, obviously. That's, that's, that would be silly not to be. But I don't think I've ever made a statement, God told me to tell you this. We have to be careful with that. We have to discern what we're basing our beliefs on. We need to square it up with the word of God. 
Because you know what? To be honest, we're a very vain people. And if we can create an audience by telling people what they want to hear, that's a big temptation. We need to guard against that. Sometimes we're just interested in giving people a certain perception. There's a new lawyer, brand new, just passed the bar exam, had his new office, rented it. First day, sitting behind his nice, beautiful desk and saw somebody walking down the hallway looking to placards and finally the guy starts to go in the office. In the lawyer's office, and the office is sitting. Be, the lawyer's sitting behind his desk, and so he grabs a phone. He picks it up real quick. Wants to look busy, right? I mean, you don't want to walk into a lawyer's office, and he's sitting there going, "Can I help you?" So he's on the phone. And he's going, "Oh, John, yeah, the uh, the merger, yeah, you know, uh, well, I don't know, you know, two million may not be enough. But we may need to go with three. Yeah, no, nah, I think Charlie needs to fly out there to Dallas because you know that's the only way we're going to get that done, and uh, you know." Well, maybe, hold on, someone's here. Yeah, I'll call you back in a few moments. Puts the phone down. He's, sorry, sir, client. He goes, could I help you? And the guy looks at him, he goes, I don't think so. I'm just here to install your phone service. (laughs) What was he doing? He was trying to give somebody a perception about something that wasn't true. Got to be careful with that. That's what false teachers do. They give you a perception. They claim to have a word from God. And there may be a bit of truth in it. Half-truths here and there. But it'll trap you. It'll snare you. God says, don't be deceived by that. Don't allow them to captivate your mind. Don't listen to people who give you half-truths. That's why here in this church, we encourage you to be part of a, a, a grace care group. Why? Because you know what? Sunday morning isn't enough. It's just not. We encourage you to be part of a a woman's Bible study. We're going to be starting up from some men's discipleship groups. Two or three men meeting every other week or so. We want to encourage your involvement in these things. Why? So that you can better understand the Word of God. Why? So that you can better understand and discern truth from error. Commit yourself this next year to be more discerning of God's truth. Then the last thing there, trust in God's faithfulness. Trust in God's faithfulness. Look at what he says here in verse 10. He says, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. You know what? The first point there is our challenges and difficulties are only for a prescribed time. Don't let them overwhelm you. It's not worth it. In this case, it was 70 years. Babylon was going to fall in 70 years. And we need to remember that when we're in the, in, in the mix of it with, with tough times and tribulations and trials and all sorts of things, we have to remember that God is in control, but God has also promised to take us through them and that we're going to come out in the end. Don't let them overwhelm you. And also, God will provide renewal and restoration. He says, I'm going to visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. God's not the kind of God that throws a trial at us so the trial will kill us, wipe us out. No. The trial is always given to us to help us grow stronger, to help us more dependent on him. Romans 4.21, it says of Moses, being fully convinced that what he had promised, 
speaking of God, he was able to perform. Are you convinced in your heart that God is able to perform all that he has promised? Are you convinced in your heart that when God says, you know what, I don't desire that any should perish. I want all to come to repentance. And I've given you the truth to go share that with people. Are you convinced in your heart that God could use you? You don't save that person, but God could use you as a link in the chain to draw them to Christ. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, without staggering. For he who promised is faithful. He who has promised is faithful. He's an anchor. And that anchor is for us when we are faced with difficult times to persevere through in faith. Don't give up. Don't hang the harp in the tree. That's why we build lives upon the firm foundation of God's word, his truth. And also there in verse 11, it says that God has plans for his people that include our ultimate good and not our demise or our harm. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. In Israel's case, God will fulfill every promise to them. Do you know that? Every promise that was promised to Israel, God will fulfill ultimately, even though they're rejecting the Messiah as we speak. He's still going to fulfill the promises. I mean, how much more, beloved, can we trust him who said to us, you know what, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you because I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, we're to trust his faithfulness. We're to trust his promises as they're revealed in his word. True hope is not based on some whimsical dreams of some self-appointed half-truth prophet, but our hopes are based upon the revealed truth of his word and the past faithfulness that he showed to us in our lives and fulfilled promises in our own lives, our testimonies. So in difficult moments, I pray that you will find within yourself, the ability to trust God by his grace in those difficult times, to trust in his plans, trust in his purpose for your life. Don't give up. Trust in that plan that he has for you to prosper, not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. You know, I'm not the, the brightest bulb on the block, intellectually. Just not. I'm just not gifted that way. I mean, I can do a lot of practical things, get a lot of things done and skilled in a lot of different ways, but, you know, intellect is not one of them. But one thing I've learned in my Christian ministry over the years, some 32 years of serving the Lord, 13 have been here right here with you guys, which has just been great, is that, you know what? And I continue to learn this each and every day, that I can trust God with everything. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what it is. I can trust God with my life. I can trust God with my ministry, my family, my marriage, my grandchildren, my daughter, my provisions. I'm not sitting here telling you I do that 100% all the time. Oh, no. Trust me. Just ask my wife. He's always showing me new ways each and every day in which I need to trust him just a little bit more, just like he does you. We're all continuing to grow in him daily. And you know what? There are days in my life, I'll tell you what, I feel like going down by the stream and hanging up the harp and just sitting there and wailing like a little baby. Why, God? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why isn't this working out the way I want it to? 
But you know what? There are also days, beloved, that far outweigh those kind of days in my life because I'm a pretty optimistic person anyway. But there are the other days that far outweigh those that I can't wait to see how God is going to speak to my heart through his word as I try to faithfully study it. I can't wait to see how God is going to speak through the congregation to me. I can't wait to see how God is going to turn things around in someone's life when it seems like they can't be turned around. I can't wait to see how God is going to transform yet another heart, save another soul for his glory. I can't wait to see how God is going to reveal to one of his followers how he or she can discover the God-given gifts and talents that they have, they possess. And how they can use, be used in the local church for his glory. Will you trust him to be your foundation, your hope, your deliverer, your guide, your shepherd, your strength? The way to assurance is found in verses 12 to 14. If we trust him, he is faithful. It says, then we will seek him. That's not a haphazard seek. That's not a once a week seek. <laughs> But that's speaking of seeking him intensely with all your heart. If you ever wanted to purchase something, maybe a new product, what do you do? You don't just haphazardly walk into a store and throw the cash on the thing. Give me one of those. No, you're going to spend some money. You're going to do some investigation. You're going to want to know what kind of support do I get after I buy this? What kind of model should I get? What's, what's the best price range? What's going to work for me? You invest some time. You don't just run out haphazardly and buy this product. See, when we seek him and we call upon him, the Bible says, with all of our heart, that's when we find him. That's what he says in verse 13. We need to call on him. We need to come to him. We need to pray to him. And he says, you know what? I'll hear you. So many times our prayers are ineffective because we're not desperate. We're not desperate for God to work. We're not desperate for God to see him fill this place up with people who have come to Christ. We're not desperate for God in our own personal lives because we're too caught up with everything else. Why is the prayer meeting the least attended meeting of any church? If you really believe God is in control, you really believe God is going to work, why wouldn't you ask him to do so? Maybe because we don't believe it. We offer different opportunities for prayer here, whether it's at the groups, women's Bible studies, men get together, downstairs they pray before the service, pray as a worship team. I mean, I trust you're praying for our radio broadcast every week at 3.30. You know, you you might find this hard to believe, but, you know, I I dial in at 3.30. Now, trust me, okay, this is a message that I've preached Then I've sat down at a computer for about an hour and a half to edit what I've preached. Got it down to the time frame. Then I send it off. And I still tune in. And you say, well, how vain is that? Wouldn't you just like to hear yourself? No. Usually I'm there in fear and trepidation. I hope I caught every mistake. (laughs) Edit it out or whatever, you know. Hope it makes sense to the people. You know why I like to listen? I don't do it every week. I try to, but, you know, sometimes you get caught up with other things. But I try to listen every week to that radio program because it gives me opportunity, not because I hear myself. I just want to pray. 
I want to pray that as those words go out over the airways of this Bay Area, that somehow God is using them in the hearts and lives of people. That's what I'm asking God to do. I pray that you're praying for that. Here come our young ones. So we get a closing prayer. I want to close with this illustration quickly, so it won't matter whether they come in or in the illustration. There was a guy by the name of V. Raymond Edmond. He was the president of Wheaton College for 25 years. And he served as chancellor for another three years. You know what's interesting about this guy? At Wheaton College, you know, he, he, he died. You know how he died? He died in chapel while he was preaching on being in the presence of God. He died of a heart attack while he was preaching on being in the presence of God. I mean, incredible story. He wrote these words, and I just want to leave you with these, and then we'll pray and go to our business meeting. He wrote these little words in a a little devotion called Quietness with Confidence. First he brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this straight place. In the fact I will rest. In that fact I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love. And give me grace to behave as his child. Then he will make the trial a blessing. Teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn. And working in me the grace he means me to bestow. Last, in his good time... He can bring me out again. How and when? He knows. Let me say that I am here, first of all, by God's appointment. Secondly, in his keeping. Thirdly, under his training. And fourthly, for his time. I hope we understand that as well in our own lives where we find ourselves. We are his people. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't thrown us to the wolves. He is a faithful God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he wants to do something fresh in your life in 2011. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the prophet Jeremiah and the words that he wrote. We thank you for the example of Israel and how they um, really came around to, to being obedient to some degree through the disciplining hand of you. And Lord, we thank you that all of us come from a sordid background, and we have different things going on in our life all the time. But Lord, the one thing that we know to be true is that you're a faithful God, and that you're there for us when others are not. And so Lord, we pray for this coming year, that as you lay upon our hearts how we can uh, really focus on being involved in building and and, and instilling your grace and mercy in the lives of others. Lord, I pray that you would use this church in 2011 for your glory, and all the families that represent that are represented by it, I pray that you would allow them to live in such a way that they speak light into the darkness through their testimonies. We pray this and thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.